Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. That is crazy, is what that is. I'm the victim. Me. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the live streaming service Twitch has banned the use of the word simp. <laughs> Is this going to affect the launch of your new channel, Peas Talks Politics? <laughs> I had not seen that. And probably like only because I haven't been on Twitter for, for a couple of days just because of work stuff. But because um, I think this is something that would totally have come across my feed. But wow. what Like, is it that insulting to be called, you know? I think people but, use it as an insult. Um, they also banned incel and virgin. I wonder. <laughs> that, is, that is such a squarely... Uh, uh, homogenous group of people who are getting offended. <laughs> I so I think simp you got to leave alone cuz it's a great it's a great word. It's a great. You know, I have I have issues with this word. So the word simp has been around for super long and um I I must have learned it through hip hop and one of my favorite songs um like from the late 80s early 90s says he's talking about unrequited love and he says damn I wish I wasn't such a simp. And that's what I always thought it as. Like, you're kind of a sucker. You're kind of a sucker for love. But now it's, yeah. just, now it's just hateful. <laughs> well, now it's, I think, but it does describe a certain kind of guy, like a, a certain kind of maybe white guy that is performatively going out of their way to support, you know, feminist <laughs> like, causes and complain about harassment. And so, uh, like, I think... We, I take it to be the kinds of guys who are paying money for like uh, they're like buying their favorite girl Twitch streamers like the new PS5 because they're just right. like suckers. It's also that it's also somebody who's like what we used to call in in our day like pussy whipped or mm-hmm. um, and then also like I remember someone was describing the cream. Queen's Gambit as the, you know, a chess genius in her simps or something. (laughs) (laughs) So like these guys, you could sort of tag along and, uh, but, but I like it also. I like, it's just a good, it's, it's a good word. It's new to me. So I, you know, and now it's being just, as soon as I'm getting used to it, it's just being taken away from me (laughs) because I'm constantly watching Twitch. I'm constantly on Twitch. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I feel the need to correct my previous quoting of my favorite, one of my favorite hip-hop songs. He says, I simp, damn, I wish I wasn't such a wimp. So that yeah. shows you like that yeah. he's he's reflecting on his own like whack 
like inability I, to catch the attention of a woman. I, f- I feel I like can tell he, you weren't listening to what I was just saying. I so was. Uh, now I, just, <laughs> I was just ruminating on <laughs> on hip hop lyrics. No, but I feel like if you had a, they, there should be a scale of simpness, um, and it would be, you know, how many OnlyFans accounts do you support? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good construct that we could come up with. Like I don't, <laughs> as far true. as I know, <laughs> can somebody simp for us? No, I think it's got to be for a woman, right? I think so. So, speaking of people who might be offended by the use of the word simp, um, and who might have complained to Twitch, there is a new paper out, a new construct called the tendency towards interpersonal victimhood. This was done by some Israeli researchers. Um, and we thought we'd talk about it, but we're not going to do the thing where we complain about the scale and we complain about the study. I just thought it would be fun to talk about this idea you know, of tendency of interpersonal victimhood as a construct and then also to maybe list some people we think might, if it is a trait, they might be high in that trait. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we should read some of the items on the scale because without reading some of them, I feel like it just sounds like we'd be insulting people like by by saying that they're they're like too, too sensitive. But maybe that's what you had in mind. Um, well, I was thinking that, you know, if you're I don't think this is a good trait to have. <laughs> no. Um but yeah, the way they describe it, and then you should go, and then you'll go into the nitty gritty as usual. Um, yeah. uh, the, an initial three studies established TIV, that's the acronym, as a yeah. consistent and stable trait that involves four dimensions, moral elitism, a lack of empathy, the need for recognition, and rumination. I like that mm. word too, in addition to simp, rumination. Those are the two <laughs> words for today. Very bad wizards words of the day. A follow-up study f- found that this tendency for victimhood is linked to anxious attachment also, and um, it may be rooted in early relationships with caregivers. Yeah. So not given the tit enough as a kid. Well, I already have my first answer. I mean, it's almost just a segue. Oh, bef- <laughs> before we get into this, we should say what we're talking about in part two. Oh, yes. We have a great, exciting guest, a dream guest, um, Agnes Collard, is going to come on to talk about um, the Gorgias, the Plato's Dialogue, the Gorgias, and also this op-ed she wrote for the New York Times. Um, That was a nice discussion. We already had it. Haven't edited it, haven't heard it, but it was a nice discussion. So are you going to kick us off with your... Well, do you want to go through the scale first? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So so this is, um, uh, let's see, 20... Two something like that items. Um, I'll read off some of them. So these are the need for recognition items. The dimension for for need for recognition. It is important to me that people who hurt me acknowledge that an injustice has been done to me. It is important for to me that the person who offended me admits that his or her behavior was wrong. It makes me angry when people don't believe that I was hurt. It is important for me to receive an apology from people who offended me. It is important to me that the person who offended me feels guilty for what he or she did. I feel angry when people ignore my feeling of being hurt. So there's a need for recognition. Uh, yeah. I, I like to think I'm not too off the charts in those, but I mean, I feel like a lot of those things are kind of important <laughs> to me. I, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, I, I feel like the, the um, of the dimensions, these, the, the, like I'm, I'm sensitive that way. Like I yeah. really, really like an apology. Like, yeah. 
<laughs> I, but I yeah. give them too. I like giving them too. But uh, but I feel like yeah, if it's a great load off when you give it, even mm-hmm. though it's hard to give. I think we've yeah. talked. Have we talked about apologies? I don't think we have. Uh, that would be a I'm, good topic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, audience. Uh, yeah, we, we apologize. <laughs> I love it. I feel so much better. Um, and my parents, <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, used to call me an injustice collector. <laughs> I think I was higher on the scales uh, when uh, when I was a child. The yeah. only child, you know, because I was until I was fourteen. You're going to score high on these things. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe you didn't get me the Dreamcast for Christmas. Um, yeah, no, no, I, I'm, I'm. This, this would be mine um, as well. I just think that. Uh, just being recognized, I, there's there's a really bad feeling that I, I don't like when somebody did something bad, but they don't even seem to acknowledge that they did they did anything. And I just want yeah. just to just know. Um, but they, but they'll be like, my wife does this sometimes. Like they will acknowledge it, but they won't feel it. They won't believe yeah. that they did anything wrong. They'll. It's almost like the I am I apologize if you were offended kind <laughs> That's of thing. The worst kind of apology. We really should talk yeah. about apologies because that is just the yeah. hands down an insult. Um, I will say though, this this says nothing about how long you hold on to it, and I don't hold on for long, so I'm not a grudge keeper. But I have members of my family who are both sensitive and grudge keepers, and so like they. They'll like, you know, in 1989, somebody said something and then they've never, ever like been willing to let it go. And it's like, eh, that, that, that to me is like that bitterness can't. My, uh, yeah. I, my dad was like that. I'm not yeah. like that at all. I, I, I forget about him. And I'm actually only sensitive in the short term to a certain group of people. Like other people can do it and I don't give a shit, you know, yeah. like, yeah. um, <laughs> But there are people who, and I don't know, it's maybe a cer- like a circle of respect or something that, right. you know, then I, I can do. Right. Okay, so the next dimension is moral elitism. And these are the six items. I remain considerate of other people even when they don't deserve it. <laughs> I think I am much more conscientious and moral in my relations with other people compared to their treatment of me. Can you hear my dog barking? No. Okay, good. Oh, no, I just did. That's all right. I mean, this is very bad wizards. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Ozzy. <laughs> um, uh, people often take advantage of my kindness. There's that that one right there is probably the load to the highest for me. All of these are like you don't want to score high in these. <laughs> yeah, they're all other characters. Yeah, I give others much more than I receive from them. Uh, that's like a sex question, I think. I feel that other people don't hesitate to take advantage of my weakness. <clears throat> people demand a lot of me without expressing gratitude. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't I would not score high in those at all. Partly it's because like it's not true of me. Like right. <laughs> those things are probably true. <laughs> right. So there there are times when I re, like I take a step back and think that people must be taking advantage of my kindness. But I actually it's not a feeling that I feel driven by. Like so I actually like doing favors for people like i enjoy and and you could in some objective way say like that these people are taking advantage of you and i'm sure i've been taking advantage of that way but i'm sure i've taken advantage of people as well it just doesn't bother me that much i yeah and it's just like it might suck to feel that way that you're constantly the better person in all of your <laughs> yeah, relationships that's right okay so lack of empathy which is the the paul bloom subscale um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when people are close to me feel hurt by my actions, it is very important for me to clarify that justice is on my side. Oh, this starts getting into like a real ugly territory. Oh, God. <laughs> the, the I hate this are, person. 
This is a, yeah, this one right here. People who are offended by me are only thinking of themselves. That one's weird. Uh, Yeah. People who claim that I behaved wrongly want me to admit it so they can take advantage of the situation. Uh, People claim that I have hurt them because they cannot see that they are the ones hurting me. (laughs) The The main reason that people are offended by me is that they cannot see things from my perspective. Uh, it is very important to me that people who are offended by me realize that they are also in the wrong. This is just ugly. Yeah. I, and, just, you know, there are people popping into my head right now. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what's amazing about some of these scales is that, you know, there's social desirability, right? There's like answering the way you, you to, that makes yourself either look uh, in a better light or, you know, what you think experimenters might want. The fact that people are probably honest for a lot of these really says something about the inability to (laughs) self-reflect. It's interesting that that's lack of empathy because it seems more like a assumption that others lack empathy more than it is that you lack empathy. Maybe those two things are related, but... uh, Right. But yeah, uh, it is capturing something. And you're right. The fact that people would actually admit it if they were high on these scales is uh is even more chilling (laughs) right yeah and and here is the part when you get say like that first one um need for recognition combined with this lack of empathy so such that whenever you hurt me you are in the bad but whenever i hurt you you didn't understand that i'm the right one like that asymmetry is like the worst kind of person to get along with exactly yeah you're you're the one who is offended even when you have been the offensive one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Turning it on you, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, the last one is rumination. Um, it is very hard for me to stop thinking about the injustice others have done to me. Days after the offense, I am very preoccupied by the injustice done to me. I am flooded by more anger than I would like every time I remember people who hurt me. I am flooded by negative feelings every time I remember people who hurt me. So those four items. This one I found tough for me to answer because it feels like um, I will ruminate. Like if somebody hurt me, like I will think about it for a couple of days and it bothers me. But I don't think that that's a lot compared to other people. So it feels like a yeah. more comparative question. Yeah, right? I agree. I think this is, you find this in academics. You find some academics who are still pissed off at their like rejection or not getting this job offer in like 1987 and they'll (laughs) never get over it and it drives them to like publish more and to like show them and to prove it to them and to make more money than these than these fucks you know who like snubbed them at an apa smoker or something you know 25 years ago and then there is like I think what you're talking about, which is if you if somebody says something offensive and insulting, you might just think about it a lot for a couple of days, two or three yeah. days, and then either that person will apologize or you'll just move on. Like right. you know exactly, yeah. exactly. I can't. I, um, and sometimes it just helps to bring it up because you realize that somebody that they would never have thought that they were saying something hurtful, and and they're immediately and that takes away all of the you know a lot of the strength of it. Do you think, though, that these people, sometimes I, I, I think that the people who like, you know, 20 years later, or like you snubbed me, um, you know, when I asked you for your autograph or whatever, the Benny Blanco from the Bronx, as I always bring it up. Yeah. Um, it, 
those people seem to have a drive that I don't. Yes. No, totally. <laughs> it's a huge like motivator, I think, for a, a, a kind of success. And the tragic a- aspect of that is they're still not happy, like I don't think, when they get that. Yeah. Because there's still always going to be somebody ahead of them that they don't th- think should be ahead of them. And maybe somebody who, you know, e- isn't noticing the fact has, how wrong they were when they right. offered the job to somebody else or, you know, <laughs> right. whatever. They're not, they're not f- un- fully aware. This is what the scale captures pretty well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of things I didn't ruminate about, but I got reminded of, did you, like, if you were off Twitter, you may have missed, blessedly, this whole thing about Dr. Jill Biden. Uh, somebody oh, wrote. No, uh, I uh, caught that. That's like, that's the day that I went off. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Was the trigger? Oh, it was one of them. Yeah. So this, like, old crotchety man. Talk about sour grapes, man. Yeah. He He just wrote a column saying, like, she should drop the doctor for her name because like her dissertation was bad or something. Like I didn't read it. It was, Oh, you didn't read it. It was like, it was so condescending and it wasn't even that it was that people who aren't MDs shouldn't call themselves doctors anyway. Um, because listen, kiddo, like he actually called her kiddo. Yeah. Um, Uh, (laughs) uh, but he's, he's telling the readership, like, I know when getting a PhD used to be super hard. Like they would test you on Latin and blah, blah, blah. And nowadays it's not. So like stop fronting like this is some great achievement. <laughs> and meanwhile, this guy is not even, ha- like he doesn't have any advanced degree. College. So you, this motherfucker, he wrote for the Wall Street Journal a review, just a lazy ass piece of shit review of why honor matters. Uh, and I was—I had totally forgotten about it. And I knew I knew that name because everybody's all of a sudden talking about Joseph Epstein. And then, yeah, he is—it's that same motherfucker, this old piece of shit. He just wrote a review that was just totally inaccurate. It wasn't even a bad review; it was just a shitty ass review that kind of pissed. That was a good example of something that pissed me off for like two days. And I think then I remember. I totally that forgot one. about it until yeah. now. That's funny. Yeah, no, you're right. It's not funny. In fact, when I was reading it, I th- my main thought was, why would the Wall Street Journal care to publish something like this? It was just bad. It was like, what's what's your point? We should only call. He's like, oh yeah, you don't want like to to, to like be looking for an MD and find out that somebody's like a doctor in musicology or something like that would be disappointing to you. Like, Which is hilarious. Ha ha ha. I know. Having said <laughs> that, the people took the bait. On oh, Twitter, I mean, we're taking and it. not <laughs> like that wasn't really uh, fun either. There so, were some injustice collectors that you know decided <laughs> to devote like three days of their life to combating this. Uh, yeah, um, the I just can't like what you were saying. I think is the right the right point to make, which is that because sometimes I wonder if only I had this th- more of this, then I would actually be motivated to do more. And it's true, I just wouldn't be happy. Like and it's right. not it's you you can you can feed this and feed this and feed this and it will never um, actually go away. Yeah, like the the productivity that you would gain yeah. is is so not worth exactly the level of just unhappiness and just dissatisfaction with life, unease in your own body, constant like people who uh, it's, it's not also- a pleasant way. Like I, I I honestly feel really sorry for these people, even yeah. when they're people who like are in you know they affect me at work, you know, and I. I it's very frustrating to deal with them, but I also still feel bad for them. Like I don't yeah. feel angry at them, like yeah. some colleagues. I so I didn't read this article um, 
the the full article where they developed the scale. But I have to think that they're what they're probably arguing is this a bad this is a bad thing. And I like I would agree. I think that there is there's a, th- a fine line, you know, when thinking of raising a kid, you want them to be able to speak up for themselves. You want them to notice when they have been wronged and do something about it. But there really is uh, a fetishization of victimhood now to the point where I think that people of my daughter's generation like to make up social groups that are oppressed and be, and join them yeah. just so that they can be part of the oppressed. And yeah, it's just like embrace your privilege, daughter. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though. Like I don't know if it's probably less true down here than it is up where you are. That, um, but they all have, you know, they all have the opinions, but I think what this trait, if it exists, at least as I understand it, it's, it's really tied to your emotions and your vis and in a way that I don't know, like how I would raise a child to not be like that. You almost have to hope that your child is not like that naturally because, Like I don't know how to you, I, you 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 don't talk people out of these kinds of things. You don't reason with them. They're not they they're too effective at um, twisting the reasoning in their favor. So like it's almost like there's nothing you can do. At least unless you're like a, a psychiatrist or something. Yeah. So maybe I think I disagree a little bit because there's part that I, where I agree. And, and so again, I didn't read this full thing, but they, they make some theoretical, um, uh, draw bridge between this and attachment style. So, you know, like how, how securely attached you are with, with your caregiver early on. And that I agree, that's the sort of thing that is either genetic or happens so early on that, that there's nothing much to do about it. Um, and then they talk about rejection sensitivity, which is another scale that's been that's been developed like a long time ago. Um, but where they but when they talk about forgiveness, that's the thing that I think we can teach our kids, like being willing to yeah. forgive people and being just by example. Like I always wanted to say I was sorry to my daughter whenever I thought I had hurt her, and just so that she would see that it was normal. Because my dad, I love my dad; he's a great man, but he never fucking says sorry. Like I think he said it twice in my life. <laughs> yeah. But that's different. You're not, I don't think you're teaching her not to be like this person. You're teaching her to be somebody who, you know, who doesn't hurt others and is willing to um, admit that they were wrong when they are. I guess so I, in that sense, yeah. Yeah, I want her to be able to let it go. And I think that, that being being not stingy with saying you're sorry, I think is an important lesson. But but you but what you say reminds me that there is a way in which you can say that you're full of forgiveness and go around forgiving people without you know, forgiveness right. entails an accusation of wrongdoing. So right. like imagine if I just came up to you and I was like, Tamla, I forgive you for, you know, like the first two years that we did this. You'd right. be like, wait, what do you mean? Like it sounds like there's an accusation there, um, so so there's fake forgiveness, but but I don't know. I like I hope that, but of course I have no idea whether this is just genetic or not. But I, I like to hope that we can teach teach our kids not to do this. All right, I guess we're not. We were going to talk about it in different articles, but we'll save that. Yeah, yeah, I think we should. Yeah. Save it. And we can get to our interview with Agnes Collard. We will be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by GiveWell. Well, it's that time of year, folks. It is literally that time of year. Christmas a few days away, and many of you are trying to decide where to give your money. What will be the best bang for your philanthropic buck? 
Well, for over 10 years, GiveWell.org has helped donors find the charities and projects that save and improve lives most per dollar. They dedicate over 20,000 hours a year researching charitable organizations and handpicks a few of the highest impact evidence-based charities. GiveWell has helped over 50,000 donors direct over $500 million to the most effective charities. All of their research is publicly available for free on their website and GiveWell never takes any fees, so 100% of your tax-deductible donation will be given to the charity you choose. Whether it's medicine or mosquito nets to prevent malaria, vaccinations or deworming, or just straight-up cash transfers for extreme poverty, GiveWell finds the most effective philanthropies to do the most good. Look, if you're a listener, you know that I'm not a full-blown utilitarian. And yeah, sure, I devote a portion of my charitable givings to causes that move me the most personally. But I also donate to GiveWell because I know that that money will be most effective at preventing suffering and improving people's lives. And if you want to make your donation have even more impact, act soon. Any of our listeners who become new GiveWell donors will have their first donation matched up to $250 when you go to givewell.org slash verybadwizards and select podcast and verybadwizards at checkout. Uh, This matching offer is good for as long as funds last, but as long as funds last, if you want your donation to have more impact, if you are a new donor, GiveWell will have your first donation matched up to $250 when you go once again to givewell.org slash verybadwizards and select podcast and then enter verybadwizards at checkout. Thank you to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the podcast where we like to take a moment to thank everybody, all of our listeners, for getting in touch with us and all the different ways that you do. We we love it. It feeds our soul, um, and we're really grateful for that. If you want to email us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet at us at Tamler, at Peas, or at Very Bad Wizards. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, join the lively conversation on the subreddit. Um, and you can also rate us on Apple Podcasts. 
that is uh, a big help for us. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I'm not even going to pretend to say <laughs> give us whatever review you want. A great Christmas gift would be to just like read a really nice review from you. Yeah, so. certainly. We should do a thing like some podcasts do where we read, yeah. we read them out. Yeah. yeah, so thank you everybody so much and we look forward to being in communication we read still read every email and if you want to support us in more tangible ways we really appreciate that as well we are just so thankful for your generosity uh, throughout the year and we want to give something back to you so if you want to support us on patreon we will give something back to you in fact we have a large back catalog of content that you can listen to on you know various forms of media and various topics with other guests um, and if you want to support us there, you can go to just our Very Bad Wizards support page and you'll see a link to our Patreon page. And what do we have coming up? I think we want to try to live stream for our Patreon supporters. I think it would be really fun um, just to sort of over the holiday break, maybe we can, uh, we can reach out to you guys. And yeah, and maybe a top, yeah, maybe a top five uh, Something. Uh, media of the year. Um, yeah, we could do that. And then also, yeah, either a bonus episode or we could fold that into the live stream. Yeah. We'll see. So, um, yeah, if you can't support us on Patreon or want to do a one-time donation, you can also go to our Very Bad Wizard support page and donate via PayPal. We very much appreciate all of those donations as well. If you want to support us and get something immediately that's comfortable and good looking, you can click on our merchandise page and that'll give you a link to our Cotton Bureau t-shirt page um it's makes for a great well i guess now it would be post christmas new year's gift for the person you love even if that person is you which you should love and uh finally you can uh listen to our five-part episode on the brothers karamazov uh which we did on himalaya you can go to himalaya.com and download the app and you can either give a flat fee to download all five episodes or you can join there's a free trial and listen that way our patreon five dollar and up supporters however uh get those episodes as part of your support so you can just go straight to the patreon page and those are in our feed and if you're actually if you're a two dollar and up supporter you get a a little bit of a better deal via the himalaya app so you get a a longer trial if you're a two dollar and up supporter and you can listen that way so Thank you very much for all the support you guys give us and happy holidays to each and every one of you. Yeah, happy holidays. Um, Okay, so we are about to welcome Agnes Collard. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, Somehow we forgot to check. Um, (laughs) Agnes is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. She's the author of the book Aspiration and also many articles on Plato, on Aristotle and Topics like anger, transformative experience, and she's also that rare thing, a public philosopher. She has a regular column at The Point, um, the the magazine The Point, and plenty of op-eds and columns, including one recently in the New York Times that we talk about at the beginning of the interview. So you might want to check that out before you listen so you know what we're talking about. The main topic of our discussion is Plato's dialogue, the Gorgias or the Gorgias. And the way the conversation went, we just kind of dove into it and to the sort of mechanics and the craft of of how it was 
um, how it was written without summarizing it at all. So I just want to take a quick moment to do that here. Um, the Gorgias is a early to mid Plato dialogue that tackles many topics. It's all over the place from the nature of rhetoric to the philosophical versus, uh, the philosophical or dialectical method versus the, the method used by orators to justice, tyranny and pleasure and shame. So the dialogue starts out with Socrates questioning Gorgias, who was a real person and a famous sophist and rhetorician, about what the art of rhetoric is exactly. And Gorgias says that it's the art of persuasion through speech about various topics, but especially persuading people in legal settings about what is just and unjust. And at first, Gorgias said that, says that rhetoricians aren't experts in the topic they're persuading people about. But then later, Socrates gets Gorgias to admit that rhetoricians must have knowledge about justice to teach their students about justice. So he contradicts himself. He is refuted in that sense. And and at this point, another character, Paulus, steps in and says that Gorgias was just ashamed to admit that a good rhetorician doesn't have uh, to, or doesn't need knowledge of justice to teach people how to persuade others on matters of justice. And so now Socrates aims his dialectical laser at Paulus, and soon they're talking about whether tyrants can be happy and whether it's better and also less shameful to do wrong than to suffer wrong, um, and also whether it's better to do wrong and get away with it or do wrong and be punished. Socrates says it's better to be punished if you're going to do wrong, and it's, and it's also better to suffer wrong than to do wrong to others. And Socrates gets Paulus to contradict himself when he when Paulus concedes that it's more shameful to do wrong than to, shuff, to suffer wrong. And now Callicles steps in, the third interlocutor in the dialogue. And Callicles is one of Plato's best characters. He's got some charisma. He can be kind of funny in an insulting way. He gets in some good digs at Socrates and philosophy too, some of which I agree with. Uh, <laughs> and it's su surprisingly he, modern that the aspect of of like digging. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, just the yeah they they rip on each other. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, and 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 Callicles then defends a kind of proto Nietzschean position that's almost shocking to see in, in you know this early, but he says that morality and justice they're just artifacts the constructions that weak people came up with because they're weak. There's, it's like the slave morality kind of idea. And they wanted to protect themselves against people with real power. So morality and justice and giving everybody things equally, that's all just pure convention invented by the weak. But by nature, the best and most admirable thing to do is to satisfy as many desires as possible um, for a powerful person. So he defends a kind of morality-free hedonism and also egoism. And Socrates kind of trips him up, by, and the way he tricks him, trips him up is by getting him to say that, number one, the pleasure that uh, a passive partner in homosexual intercourse, <laughs> a bottom, 
that, that that pleasure isn't good, even though he always says that pleasure is good. And also that the pleasure cowards feel on the battlefield when enemies retreat isn't good. Uh, and now Callicles feeling like he's been tricked and pulled into something he didn't even want to get involved with. He turns sullen and pissed off because uh, he feels like Socrates is kind of playing word games with all of them. And really none of them are convinced by Socrates. And the dialogue ends with Socrates giving a long speech about a myth of, of justice in the afterlife even though he started out saying that nobody should give long speeches in this discussion. <laughs> uh, and this is something we talk about with, with Agnes. Um, okay, so that's the quick summary, but no summary can do Plato justice. That's for sure. You have to read it and talk about it. And that's what we did with Agnes Collard. So let's get to the interview. All right, welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're pleased to welcome Agnes Collard to the podcast to talk Primarily about Plato and his dialogue, the Gorgias or Gorgias. God, I don't know which way I'm going to say it. Um, welcome to the podcast, Agnes. Thank you. Did you, wait? Did you tell? We don't. I don't. I think that we need to get this out of the way. You were Tamlers. Uh, we had an episode where we were listing our dream guests, our top guests, and Tamler listed you. So I just wanted to get out there that Tamler, uh, <laughs> Tamler had you at the top of his list. This, this is a dream come true. I'm very honored. You recently are in the public eye even more than you normally are because you wrote an op-ed that, and we get the Sunday Times, and I saw that it was in the print edition of the Sunday Review called, I don't want you to believe me, I want you to listen. So I'm wondering how people are responding to it first, and then I guess I have at least one question about it. Yeah, so I would say the response can be divided pretty neatly into like, some territories. I've gotten hundreds of emails about it. Um, so I guess the main thing is there's a lot of response. A lot of people are reading it and it's kind of hitting people hard. Um, so I would say there's like a, a good proportion of the response is like amazingly to me because I didn't anticipate this at all. I'm in exactly the same shoes as you and I didn't think that anyone else was in this position. Uh, so like that's amazing to me. Um, like I didn't, I didn't write this thinking like this is going to speak to other people who are going to say me too. But there are a lot of people who said that. Then there are just a lot of people who wrote to me very kindly being like, I'm willing to listen to you, which was like extremely sweet and generous. And, and that was, and some of those people are like, I'm like you, but most of them were not. Most of them were just like, if you want someone to talk to you, uh, you know, so that was kind of amazing. Um, and then okay, a, a small, a small group of people who are almost all men, but not all men were extremely angered by it and wrote me just very angry messages. And then I guess there's like, like the fourth group is like people who know me, like, but are maybe like who know me even kind of well, but like are not like super, super close to me for whom these were both kind of shocking revelations and who very, very much felt like I was personally addressing them and in some cases blaming them. Oh, wow. Like, I didn't realize how much people would read this as like, this is addressed to you in particular, um, but it definitely had that effect. And so that was like, like there were a lot of upsetting conversations in which like I realized that I had like inadvertently accused a bunch of people <laughs> that I really hadn't oh. wanted to accuse at all. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in which I was forced to eventually acknowledge like that in a lot of cases, like my not talking to people was more a product of my own cowardice than anything else. 
That's super interesting because you, you know, you wrote this and we'll put a link to this for our listeners. You wrote this um, in very, you know, like without much detail, you spoke of a couple of, of things in your life, an event and a fact about your life. And my, you know, my first response was, I want to be a listener. I want to be able to listen to you, but I didn't believe that you would believe me. <laughs> but, but you wrote like a Rorschach test. You're like, the people are reading into what you're saying, I'm sure, both personally and autobiographically, but also I'm sure that like the people who write you and, and say, like, I'm in the same position, you don't exactly say what your position is. So they're reading something into it. So it's been like reading it must be therapeutic to them. Yes, I think that that's true. I also think that there's something in the spirit of it where they might be it might maybe not even be that important whether they're giving a correct interpretation of like what are the events and what is the fact, but that there's something. So like, here's the thing that I only realized after writing it by talking to people. Like I spent like the whole week basically talking to people about it. It's that like a lot of people responded, a lot of the people who are sort of in the, you know, not my innermost circle, but um, by saying like, why did you make assumptions about us? Like, why did you presuppose that we'd react in a certain way? Like you're getting angry at people because you think they're going to make assumptions about you, but you're making assumptions about us. And that was true. And what it revealed to me is that like fear has a kind of blanketing power. Like you can think of it like snow, right? Where there are these fine grained differentiations that we make all the time as to who can we trust and how much can we trust them and what can we reveal, right? But fear like shuts, shuts down those like fine grained <laughs> distinctions. And essentially there's just like the reaction that you fear becomes the reaction that you assume everyone's going to have. And I think that's one of the things that the piece sort of expresses is the frustration over having that fear and over being in some sense as much possessed by bias and assumption as the person that I'm speaking to. What made you decide to frame it like that as a fact and an event without specifying what they were, although kind of giving a lot of clues and hints as to what they were. Was there a draft of it where you just straight up said what they were and then you chose to frame it this way? Or yeah, what, what, what was the thought process behind crafting it that way? There was never a draft that uh, specified, and which in a way is weird when I think about it because the way this came about was like I wasn't writing an op-ed. I was just kind of upset and like writing this sort of to myself. And I sent it to, like I hadn't, you know, even really thought about like publishing it. Um, uh, and I sent it to a friend of mine who shares the fact. And he was like, you should send this to the New York Times. And I'm like, are you kidding me? The New York Times is never going to publish this. I've written for the New York Times before, but like, this is not like anything else I've written for them. I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't belong in a newspaper. And he's like, just, just send it to them. And I, I think that I, like, I was so sure that they would be like, no, uh, that that made it easier for me to send it. <laughs> um, but the point is, I didn't write this thinking this is going to be in the New York Times at all. Right. And so, so you might think, yeah, then that would it would make sense if I had a story where some version of it specified, but I don't. I, and I think part of it is that the frustration that the piece is coming out of is this stuff. There's this stuff that I can't say. Like I literally can't say it, and I'm not specifying it because I can't say it. I could say a certain word, but if I know that that word is going to be misinterpreted, right, then I haven't said the word that I tried to say. And so that's like the not saying it really is it sort of performs a certain fact that I take to be the case, which is like, there's something I can't express. And I could use a certain form of language that might seem to my reader to disambiguate and to precisify, but it would just be an illusion of precision. Right. That's so interesting. That's like a, that, <laughs> that is a really good point. And I think one that's so broadly relevant about any time we try to 
anytime I try to communicate anything, that's, yeah. When you said that people were angry, were they angry at what you said earlier that you were making assumptions about them, these men, these angry men, and you were making assumptions about how they would react? Or what was the, the source of their anger? No, not at all. Um, they were angry um, that I was making demands of them to listen to me. Um, why do you deserve to be listened to? You're a child. You should grow up. You know, like there's something, they were pattern matching it with something like, uh, I think, something like women are always complaining or something like that. That's sort of the the sort of level on which it was heard. And it was it was heard, I think, in a way as a request for deference, like of, in effect, they were, they were seeing it as part of the, um, what I called the sort of pain Olympics. Like I was like, look, they, without, even though I was saying, don't do this, what they were saying, what they were hearing me as saying is I am somehow in a less privileged position than you. Therefore you owe me something and I can demand that from you. And they're like, who are you to say that I owe you this? I don't owe you anything. Right. So it was that, that was the dynamic that emerged with those, with that set of interlocutors. That's that's very much more the opposite of what you were saying than what you were saying. Yes, but I think that here's an interesting thing that I've found to be the case with public writing. So like I wrote this op-ed, my previous op-ed was on, it was called Should We Cancel Aristotle? And that got a lot of attention to you. And a pretty large percent, not like not 50, not even 20, but maybe 10% uh, of readers took away from that piece that I thought we should cancel Aristotle, even though the answer I give is no, we should not cancel Aristotle. And I say that very clearly, and the piece is an explanation of why we should not, right? So that's weird, right? They, uh, that is, it was a question, and I give the answer, and I'm extremely explicit about the answer, right? Why would they, why would they mishear that? And I think the answer is that on certain topics, people expect you to signal your position in a really extreme way, so that if I were really against canceling Aristotle, then what I would do would be, my whole piece would be indignation over, you know, the people who think we should cancel Aristotle. Whereas my piece is like, hmm, there's a pretty good case to be made for canceling Aristotle, but often consider we shouldn't do it for these reasons, right? And so they're, they're pattern matching that to people who want to cancel Aristotle because I'm not sufficiently over on their side. So I think people, when they read newspapers, there's already a set of categories into which they're placing people. And so if you make yourself a little bit difficult to place, then you become a Rorschach test, basically. Yeah. And you, that's so interesting, like, because there is a genre of that essay. You'd be quoting people on Twitter. Exactly. You'd be doing all that stuff, express, like being so indignant about all these people not recognizing the, the different culture and the different time. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. That's a perfect diagnosis. And, and somewhat relevant if we can bridge to, you know, the problems with language and using language to express positions, I think, is part of what's at stake in the Gorgias. But before we get to Gorgas, maybe let's talk about Plato more generally. The reason you were my dream guest was that I, I'm really interested in Plato and the and the way he wrote and the form that he wrote. And I taught a seminar recently in the spring on philosophical genres. So I was introduced to a lot of the literature on why Plato wrote dialogues and how to interpret Plato, given that he wrote dialogues. So I guess... At the most basic level, I'm wondering what you think about just that question, why you think Plato wrote dialogues and what it allows him to do that he wouldn't be able to do had he written in a more traditional form. 
One thing to keep in mind is that there was no other traditional form that was associated with philosophy at the time, right? So we call it traditional, like if we think of what Kant is doing. I, I don't even say Aristotle because like, you know, if, if Aristotle's texts really are originally lecture notes, then like they get worked up into texts, like it's not even clear that those are being produced in, in, in accordance with a traditional text, right? It's not clear that Plato had available to him some like other model that would be the traditional model, right? So I, I think in a way, Plato, it was the Wild West, right? He, like he could just kind of, you know, do what he wanted. Now, but suppose that you're Plato, right? And you want to present arguments. So you want your text to present arguments. And it's not that Parmenides' text and Anaxagoras' text and whatever, we don't have all of these, right? It's not that they don't present arguments, but they're not optimized for the presentation of arguments. One way you could optimize for the presentation of arguments is to have premises be separated from one another because it's really easy to, much easier to follow an argument if the premises are separated. Like, here's one premise, here's another premise. Dialogue is like an obvious way to do that. So it's like, Go read Kant and tell me what the premises of the arguments are. It is not easy. If you read Plato, it's a lot easier because it's like one sentence. And Socrates is like, so do you agree with this? Yes. Do you agree with this? Yes. Do you? But then, right? So one thing about that, one thing you have to give the dialogue form is that it kind of is apart from the formal ways of representing arguments that become available later, right? Where we can put P1, P2. This is like pretty close to P1, P2. So that's one thing about the dialogue form is that it is kind of optimized for the presentation of arguments as far as I can see. As, as I understand it, though, philosophical treatises were contemporaneous with Plato and that there were philosophers. Am I wrong about that? That was my reading understanding from the second. Like, who are you thinking of? I don't know. Now that I'm thinking of it, I don't know. Democritus, Epicura, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm going by third, like secondhand what the sec people in the secondary li literature were saying about this. Uh, yeah, so maybe not. And certainly, even if there were, it wasn't the standard. It wasn't the traditional way because there was no traditional way of presenting. So, yeah. Yeah, good. I mean, we don't have Democritus, so that's part of the... <laughs> we don't know. Um, you know, we do have... I mean, we have fragments... We have fragments of Parmenides. And I mean, one thing that's interesting is that um, the dialogue form allows you, for instance, to also to kind of, it seems to be connected to the turn towards ethics and away from like cosmology, right? And, you know, one thing that's said about Socrates, where Socrates um, is resistant to it and then pushes back against it is like the, he inquires above the heaven and below the earth, right? Um, so that's that's in Aristophanes' clouds. And then Socrates says, yeah, that's a big part of the animus against me in the Apology. And so the kind of ancient physics and cosmology, where there is something like a kind of treatise there, is also, interestingly, sort of at odds with the Socratic ethical project. And he makes that point really explicit in the Phaedo, where he's like, yeah, I used to be into this stuff. So yes, I think you're right that in some sense, there could have been something like a continuous text, right? Um, there's a question of what we mean by treatise, where, where in effect, what I'm asking myself in terms of treatise is like, to what extent is the text a series of arguments or attempting to present arguments or, you know, attempting to present an argumentative system? But presumably what, what this dialogue is about is uh, the orators and their method, part of what it's about. And so you had as a unit of persuasive philosophy, a speech. And one would think one would be tempted to just write those down. Um, so it seems like he's taking some sort of stand against it by, by using the form of the dialogue. There are a lot of reasons I think you can give. Um, in a way, my first answer to why did Plato write a dialogues was sort of like, 
like, well, it's kind of the best choice for the goals that he had, right? But I'm not saying that that's, that's not so much an attempt to get at his motivations. It's almost an attempt to get at, like, what would what else would we have liked him to do? <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, the other thing to note is that other people wrote Socratic dialogues too, right? And so writing Socratic dialogues was a thing. And, you know, we have Plato's and Xenophon's, um, but we also know that this was like a thing people did. And, uh, you know, a big part of it was something like the desire to preserve Socrates and the philosophical legacy of Socrates and the thought that the best way to do that would be to sort of write some kind of versions of the sorts of conversations that he had. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by NordVPN. Look, there are a few things that deeply disturb me about browsing the internet in today's day and age. One is security and privacy. Your internet service provider knows everywhere that you go, every place that you visit. So even if you're very careful with what information you give out to services, the internet service provider is logging everything that you do. It also bothers me that if I'm in a public Wi-Fi spot, like in the airport or coffee shop, that I'm actually vulnerable to uh, being sniffed out by people with more technical savvy than me. The other thing that really bothers me is just the pervasive amount of ads that we get on every website. They slow down your computer, they track you, they're intrusive, they make the user experience terrible. These are problems that can be solved with NordVPN. Nord allows you to connect up to six devices and I've been running it on my iPhone, my iPad, my Mac, my two Macs actually. It's as easy as one click of the button and you get the protection that Nord offers. It's also super fast. There is no slowdown that I've experienced in my internet connection. And one of the great benefits of running a VPN like Nord is that you can actually make the internet think that you're anywhere in the world. Um, and therefore you can unlock the content on say streaming services like Netflix that you might not have access to in your own country. Nord is compatible with most operating systems, Windows, Mac, Linux, iOS, Android. There's unlimited bandwidth when you're a member. Nord even has an extension for Chrome browser, which is lightweight and user-friendly from the first click. So just one click and it secures your browsing in seconds. So if you care about these things and you're one of our listeners, I would urge you to go try it out. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee. And if you're a listener, you get a special deal, a special holiday deal uh, that Nord has given us. Every purchase of a two-year plan will get you four additional months for free. So all you have to do is go to nordvpn.com VBW and use our coupon VBW at checkout. Again, uh, for the two-year plan. It's less than a price of a coffee per month. Um, go to nordvpn.com slash VBW and use the coupon VBW at checkout. Our thanks to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. If you think it's an ideal form or a very good way of presenting arguments, why has it fallen out of favor? And why do we have, you know, the manuscript, the um, the article, and why why haven't re we returned to dialogues as a way of presenting arguments? Yeah, good. So I think it hasn't at all fallen out of favor in terms of readership because we're still reading Plato's dialogues and we're reading them in intro philosophy classes and we're not reading those articles, <laughs> right? And there's a reason for that. And I think it's because they present arguments really well. 
Um, but you might be like, yeah, okay, but if this is the way to present arguments, well, why aren't we presenting arguments this way? And I think that, you know, it's interesting that when you look at, of course, Plato isn't the only philosopher in the history who wrote dialogues, right? So Augustine, you know, Barclay, Hobbes, like to, to jump temporally, right? So what I find when I read dialogues written by somebody who's not Plato is that it tends to me to seem as though somebody took one point of view and spread it over two characters. Like it's a fake dialogue. Like there's actually a a non-dialogic version that they put some dialogue clothing on. And Plato's dialogues don't read like that. Like Callicles is a guy and you can hear his voice. You can feel him, right? And so I think the fact that Plato's dialogues are based in some way on actual conversations that involve actual people is part of what makes them gripping. And if you want to know where else are we doing this now, we are doing it all the time on podcasts, right? Podcasts are dialogues. And, you know, in a way, one way to think about it is like the Platonic dialogues were just kind of the original podcasts. And people are into like, they, they kind of, it turns out they really like hearing different voices engaging with one another rather than reading a continuous text that's expressed from one point of view. We are like Plato, Dave. Yeah, we, exactly. Well, no, no, you guys are like... Callicles and Polis. Let's do that. I always thought we were like the tortoise and Achilles from Lewis Carroll. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those those are nice dialogues. Those are pretty fun. <laughs> do you associate Plato's views with Socrates or do you think he is uh, giving a voice to different arguments that he finds have force without wanting either to give the game away about what he believes or that he's genuinely conflicted and this is his way of working it out himself. Sometimes I'm just very puzzled by that question because in a way, suppose that the dialogue has a bunch of views in it, right? And it's going to have the views of Socrates and the views of Callicles and, you know, Polis and Gorgias. And then we want to know well, what was Plato's view? Did he agree with Socrates? Did he sort of have a modified version of Socrates, right? Um, And it's like, why would we care? Like, he was just some other guy who might have had an opinion about this conversation in a way, right? (laughs) So there's something funny about wanting to know what Plato's views were, given that he doesn't tell them to us. Right. And chooses not to. Right. And it's like, you know, um, 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 maybe, maybe that was important to him, like to not have a view, right? I think that one thing that does, you know, that I tend to sort of roughly go along with is that when you move towards the later, what are called the later dialogues, the character of Socrates is probably closer to a mouthpiece for Plato than the character of Socrates in the earlier dialogues. So that that would then suggest, you know, if you're reading um, the Theotetus or something like that, um, then you, there's more of a chance that you can look to the character of Socrates to figure out what Plato thought, say, right? That's, that's, a conven- that's conventionally believed because there does seem to be a kind of shift. And I see no reason not to think something like that is right, given that there's the shift. Who's he going to shift Socrates to but himself, right? It'd be weird if Socrates became the mouthpiece for some other guy. Um, but, you know, when we're looking at the Gorgias, which is like an early mid-dialogue, and then we just want to know sort of like what did Plato think? Like, I feel like I just don't have any basis for making that judgment, and, I, and I'm and i not sure why it would matter. Yeah, I wasn't suggesting that it matters, just that I do think some scholars interpret it that way, or if they don't, they attribute it just to him capturing the the historical Socrates. And I guess there, what what's interesting to me about the form of the dialogue is that it allows you to leave the reader to tease out you know, the arguments and what's going on for themselves without 
having any real sense of where the author stands on it. And in that way, there's an artistic quality that I love about the dialogues. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't even call that artistic. Like, I think, I think it's obvious that Plato found all of the arguments being given in this dialogue pretty compelling. That he found Socrates' arguments compelling, and that in particular, Callicles' position he found compelling. But I think he even finds Polis's frustration with the fact that Socrates always gets to call the shots pretty compelling, right? What he wants to do is kind of showcase that a bunch of these compelling positions and how they're kind of, at, in some sense, at war with one another. In a way, I guess I think that the desire, like, well, okay, what did Plato think? It's almost like a desire to not get embroiled in those battles, like to be able to step back and be like, okay, but at the end of the day, after we've fought these battles that we don't want to fight and don't want to get involved in, right? At the end of the day, what am I supposed to think? So that I can like almost like bypass, right? And I think what Socrates, what Plato, if anything, if I can attribute anything to Plato, it's like the desire to not have you do that, to not have you look for an jump to an end of the day. Like he wants you to find Callicles really compelling, and he wants you to find Socrates really compelling, and he wants you to feel forced to get into that dispute. You know, so again, I'm a psychologist. I I read Plato maybe when I was uh, in high school or early college, and I come back to this. And I'm struck by what this form allows for like the dirtiest of tricks of like getting characters to grant positions when the reader might not. And Socrates moves on and offer, and and there is like, oh, it's a win for Socrates. So I find that to be exactly the sort of persuasive tactic that Socrates seems to be arguing against here. Where it's like, you know, maybe these really were people, and, and and maybe Socrates was systematically dismantling them in such a, like, you know, fashion. But, it, like, it seems like a cheap way of winning an argument to create a second character who just grants your most damning of conclusions or the premises that lead to those conclusions. I say that loving this, but yeah. But. So here's what's going to happen. Like, I'm going to give you a response right now, right? And my response is going to be, like, defending Plato— Right. And defending Socrates and saying these are good arguments. Um, and I'll, I'll give a little piece of that. I don't think anyone's supposed to be winning the arguments. That is, as I just said, I think that, um, you know, I do think that something that happens in the Gorgias and is quite distinctive about the Gorgias is that a set of positions is vindicated, but they're vindicated because people push back against them as hard as possible. And you have like, no, I won't accept it. I won't accept that doing injustice is worse than suffering it. I won't. And they fight and they try to come up with opposing positions and they find themselves unable to say anything but these things that are then described as being tied down with iron and adamant. It's actually distinctive of the Gorgias that it ends up like that. A lot of the dialogues are just like the Protagoras, we switched positions somehow. That's weird. The end, right? But the Gorgias is, it does kind of land somewhere, but it lands somewhere because the interlocutors fight back super hard. Okay. So I said that, right? Now people are listening, right, to this conversation that we're having. And they're like, why is he saying, mm -hmm. I just came up with a great argument against her. Why did he just let her get away with that? Right. Um, so the thing about a conversation is you can't say every possible thing in response to the thing that somebody just said. And the fact that you can't do that doesn't mean that we're not taking each other seriously and having a real conversation and trying to have an argument and trying to persuade each other. It just means we have limited minds, right? And of course, the first thing that's going to happen when somebody hears this conversation is they're going to hear all this like negative space that we didn't cover, right? And that's part of Plato's point. Is like, <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but that's not like that's not like a trick that we're doing where you're letting me get away with stuff or I'm letting you get away with stuff. They're no, we're not being tricky. We're just being limited. Yeah, but if I wanted to commit my arguments to sort of a record and I wanted to do my best to persuade future generations, it seems as if 
I wouldn't, I'm not, it's not like he had to write down conversations, right? That it's true that that's how conversations go, but it seems as if taking care of, you know, like I'm not going to defend modern philosophy too much, but the one thing about it is that you have to think of all of the possible objections in order to have said to have been, uh, have really proved your point or argued favorably for your position. And so when you have just the one character who might've been distracted or wanting to nod because they're, you know, like they like to please, like a podcast host doesn't want to interrupt um, the guest. It it's it seems as if that's not the most efficient way of of communicating the power of your um, philosophical arguments. Well, there's a question: What's your goal? Right. So the way you just put your goal is persuading people of your arguments. But the Gorgias says there's two kinds of persuasion: right, the kind with and the kind without teaching. And Notice that your response to the lacunae in the dialogues where somebody, you know, says, oh, yeah, OK, um, and they shouldn't have your response is immediately to be like, wait a minute, there's a problem here. So you're, you don't do the thing that the character does. Right. In fact, you don't do it partly because the character does it. So, you know, one way to think about this would be suppose that instead of just wanting people to believe the conclusions of my arguments, what I actually wanted to do is real persuading the kind that includes teaching. That would only be possible if my, you know. The, the person who's receiving this does it in a particular spirit, namely by challenging it in all sorts of ways and in some sense reasoning it through on their own such that they really understand why. They're not just repeating some words that I said. And it's pretty plausible that putting it in the form of a conversation with roads not taken left for the reader to feel compelled that they have to explore is a good way to do that. I often have the response that Dave has to dialogues like The Republic where it seems like Glaucon and Adamantus are like yes men in like too much. They're not challenging anything. There's like clear leaps that they're not even catching. In this one, though, they are trying to push back as uh, as much as they can. And, and it's really interesting the way they sort of end up like they were tricked or they were they were refuted technically like you might be if you were being cross-examined on a witness stand but you were trying to tell the truth but not but they don't feel like they were really refuted and they say that repeatedly i think everybody kind of says that and there is a palpable sense of failure at the end of this dialogue where it's not that just that Socrates hasn't convinced them. He's angered them. He's turned them antagonistic. They were very cheerful and affable and hospitable at first. And now he, he uh, Callicles has become sullen. And the most striking thing is that Socrates is reduced to giving speeches, speeches that invoke these, these myths. That is the very thing that he are, I, I take him to be criticizing at first. And so it feels like at the end of this dialogue, there are no winners. Um, now I think that's what's, that's fascinating about the dialogue, but I, I don't know if, if what's fascinating about it is that I was presented really powerful arguments or positions. I think Plato must have consciously chosen to give this sense of failure, this sense of Socrates as someone who has made his interlocutors like worse people, at least temporarily, because they started out happy and now they're, and, and, and generous, and now they're sullen and withdrawn. I'm not sure that's making anyone worse. You know, there are moments in the dialogues where that is theorized. For instance, in the Mino, where Mino's like, Mino's like, you've screwed me up. I used to be able to give many fine speeches about virtue, and now I run into you and I'm like numb, right? And Socrates is like, you know, I haven't actually hurt you. It might feel to you as though I have, and that's why you're upset with me. 
But what I've shown you is that like this kind of grand theory of yourself that you have, and then this this thought that you have this capacity, like it's not actually there. And I think he's shown that precisely to Callicles because Callicles had this idea. I am a kind of um, cynical demystifier. So I can see that there's like uh, the truth about ethics, um, that ethics is basically a lie believed by the sheep. Um, and like, you know, I adopt the path of the real man who, you know, can get power and um, um, can um, can be better than everybody else, partly through my understanding that of like the fact that I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid that everybody else has. And Socrates is like, awesome. So tell me what's this special theory of yours. And it turns out to be underwritten by a kind of unrestrained hedonism that actually just doesn't make sense. Right. And Socrates, I think the climax of the dialogues is these, these, these two arguments, they're sort of tend to be overlooked that Socrates gives against Calliclean hedonism where Calicles has to admit that his kind of whole ideological or sort of counter ideological edifice does not work. And I think, and and those arguments, by the way, are such good arguments. They're still, you know, you can still hear echoes of those arguments in contemporary discussions of hedonism, right? Um, so I don't see that as a failure. Um, I don't see it as a failure philosophically or argumentatively, and I don't see it as a failure with reference to Callicles. It does piss Callicles off. I think it's okay to piss people off. Um, what is it going to improve them in the long term? We have some reason to believe that the answer to that is no, um, because of some of Socrates' other associates, right? So that's that's a fair point, but that I take to be in a way outside the scope of the dialogue. But is it because they say that, that you know, Pericles can't complain that they almost put him to death and convicted him because he his job was to make them better, and Socrates says, my job is to make you better, and so it is in the scope of the dialogue if the thing that you're doing as a philosopher or a rhetorician or an orator is to um, make people better or to make them worse. That's what uh, marks you as a, you know, a virtuous leader. So, no, that's only if you think you have the techne, and Socrates doesn't think he has it. So his point is that Callicles and, and Polus and Gorgias and Pericles all think they know something, and they all think that they're, they have this ability to achieve certain results, and they don't have it. Socrates knows he doesn't have it, so he doesn't think he can make people better. It's a, I don't know. He says something at the end. I mean, look, you've taught a whole seminar on this, so you're almost certainly right. But I remember that there's a, a line at the end where he says, you know, you're, you might be right. They might put me to death because I actually, I don't flatter them. I don't do the thing that, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. You're right. He says yeah. that. And so I actually try to make them better people. And in the apology, you know, that's his thing. I've, I've tried to bring out the best in the Athenian people. And so there is something, I don't know, at least maybe tragic or ironic about, about the fact that he, that he didn't and would continue not to, as as you said, right? So he says, what he says um, is that he exhorts people to take care for their souls. I'm not sure whether he says that in the Gorgias or the Apology. Certainly he says it. So he doesn't claim to be able to make people better, right? Um, and that's connected to his claim that he's not a teacher. I think he thinks that he can help people, um, but not in the manner of teaching. He can help people in the sense that they could inquire with him. And to the extent that they're willing to inquire with him, I think that he thinks that both parties are going to be improved by that. Um, and in fact, I think he thinks that the one refuted is more benefited than the other one. But the question that we're, you know, so in effect, there's a question intradialogically, is what Callicles undergoes a good thing or a bad thing? And I want to say it's a good thing. Callicles was in fact benefited. This is a happy thing. that He wasn't happy about it, but... 
he did undergo a good thing. And if he kept interacting with Socrates, right, um, he would get more and more of that good thing. But if he goes away, um, then, you know, that kind of viewing what happened from the outside perspective, he might say, oh, you harmed me, Socrates, et cetera, and then want to kill Socrates or whatever. And Socrates doesn't feel like he has instilled in Calicles some kind of knowledge that would be proof against that kind of change of mind. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I've, I've been asking a lot of questions, but I, I guess I, I have an alternate way of... Well, go ahead. Tell me your alternate way. Well, so Calicles starts out the dialogue. This is something I always forget whenever I go back to it. And he seems like the nicest guy and, you know, very hospitable. He's very welcoming to Socrates. And it's almost like after what um, Socrates does with Paulus, which I don't know if it's fair play. There's I, I know there's a lot of contention over whether Socrates wins that argument through an equivocation. It seems like Callicles almost is impelled to take a more extreme position than than he already has just because he's pissed off to see at what Socrates has done to Paulus and Gorgias, almost taking advantage of them. Then he, he kind of paints himself into this corner, giving this Nietzschean slave morality account of, you know, what so- and, 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 and yes, he's refuted and he's refuted well. I don't know that he would have... Uh, you know, it, it seemed like what Socrates was doing in the first part of the dialogue led to that in the first place. I think that there's something right in the way that you're framing the dialogue. I definitely think there's a kind of escalation that is motivated by the earlier things. But I think it's something quite specific. Um, namely, each interlocutor feels that the previous interlocutor held back because of shame. So um, they feel like, Socrates, you were able to refute the guy who came before me only because he wouldn't say what he really thought, because he was ashamed to say what he really thought, right? And so when, by the time we hit Callicles, what we're hitting is a guy who's like, I'm going to go all out. Like, and, and there's something very, it's almost like this is Plato pushing a certain line of thought as hard as possible. And in a way, like at this moment, I want to say, forget Callicles, forget these people, right? So Plato's interested in this idea. And what he's in particular, I think, interested in is this idea that that it's possible to sort of view the, let's say, almost like to use a Freudian term, manifest morality. Freud talks about the manifest content of your dream, like the, just the, the surface content of it, right? And then there's like the deep stuff below it. So there's a kind of manifest morality where we say things like, it's bad to like kill people and you should be just and you should, you know, uh, that all of the interlocutors in some way think that that's kind of verbal, and that we have to pay homage to it, but like we can have our secret beliefs, right? And what Plato's doing is like pushing harder and harder to be like, look, tell us what the secret beliefs are. And the thing is, when you get the secret beliefs, they're garbage, right? They're not a theory. They're not an ideology. They're nothing. And so there's this illusion that people have, and I think the illusion is present in Nietzsche and it's present in all the demystifiers, that we can sort of um, cut through the crap of morality and get to like this secret view. And then the secret view is going to somehow be coherent and it's going to be a theory. And the Gorgias is this, I, I take the, the profundity of the text is that it is this argument that you can't do that because the thing, the secret theory you think you have in a way, precisely because it's been protected from interaction by having had to be kept secret like, it's just really low quality as a theory. It's not even at the basic level coherent. Plato thought this point was so important, he just made it again in Republic One, right? So you have Thrasymachus saying really similar things to Callicles and Socrates being like, okay, so let me just buy your, like, anti-morality morality. Let's see how this works. And it's, it doesn't work, it turns out, right? And it's it's like the person who produces this morality is sure that the only reason people don't accept it is because they don't want to be cynical. 
And Plato's like, no, the reason we don't accept it is that it's illogical. Right, yeah. Although, even in Republic One, uh, his two friends are not convinced, refutated. They just think Thrasymachus messed up, right? And that they can present a better challenge. Just like the Gorgias, right? So there's this sense that the cynical view, if we just did a better job saying the cynical view, so there's this almost illusion that there's a perfect version of the cynical view that would not be would not just collapse under logical pressure. But I think, you know, it's a principle of Socratic ethics that any ethics that we can really believe in has to, in a pretty important and robust way, be assertable. What do you make then of the fact that he concludes this? And I know he concludes the Republic also with the myth, but in this case, there's a double irony of concluding this dialogue with a, like a long speech that invokes, you know, some sort of supernatural judgment, which we have reason to believe Socrates didn't fully buy into that myth. And he's using it as a kind of image. He's, it seems like he's using it as a, a form of persuasion to get them to see what he sees. And that seems illegitimate, maybe. Uh, and I'm not saying Plato isn't aware of it. I think he probably is aware of it. But to end on that note where, you know, like a th three to four page long speech where he's been asking everybody not to give speeches and to invoke these myths that can, you know, they're, they're not subject to refutation or not. You know, they're just, I don't want to say dogma because I don't think he presents it as dogma, but they're certainly unfalsifiable in the way that dialectic is supposed to be something that you can clearly either refute or or hold strong. So, yeah, what do you make of Plato ending the Gorgias that way? So, one way to think about it is, what would we prefer Plato to do? Okay, so here's the thing. No dialogue is going to end with the characters having exhaustively come to complete knowledge of all things, right? So all the well, dialogue... Every episode, uh, every episode that we do ends that way. <laughs> We're almost there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, so every dialogue is going to end in some sense, you know, in media ray, like just in the middle of things are not complete, right? And then it just ends, right? And now some of the dialogues just end like that. You know, you look at the Protagoras, the Euthyphro, right? A lot of the dialogues are just like, okay, bye, Socrates. Okay, what, what do people say about those dialogues? Oh, well, they didn't get anywhere and they never made any progress. And the dialogue ends in just aporia and confusion. And like, what is even the point of having platonic dialogues if they're going to end like that? Okay, then you get a bunch of other dialogues like the Gorgias and the Phaedo and the Republic and they end with a myth, right? And people are like, oh, well, a myth is just like a fake bunch of lies. And like, why do you end with that, right? And one thing we have to think about is like, okay, well, how, what should he have done, right? What should Plato have done? So I think that what he's doing in his myth dialogues is he's trying to say something like, we have to stop here, class, <laughs> and we haven't finished anything. And I want you to, but it's not true that we haven't gotten anywhere. And I want you to have almost like a mnemonic, <laughs> like a way of taking with you some of the things where I do think we've got, gotten somewhere here. And people tend to really like images for that. So I'm going to give you some images. And, you know, he's pretty clear in a, like, in a couple of different contexts that the images don't constitute an argument, that these stories don't constitute an argument, but that they are a way of 
They're like a way of holding on to a bunch of ideas, right? And and in fact, in the Gorgias, he's really clear, like, I'm going to tell you what the ideas are. Let me list them first, right? And there are things about doing injustice, about suffering, et cetera. There's like a list of them. And then he's like, now I'll tell you the story that helps you remember those ideas. And then he tells you the story, right? So he's like, he's very explicit about what he's doing. So I think giving people this mnemonic, you could think of it as a kind of antidote to the fact that the dialogue has to end before they've really come to the conclusions that they need to. And so Plato tries it both ways. He tries it without that and with it. And like both are unsatisfying and they're unsatisfying because what we would really like is for it to go on forever. And I think that that complaint is not illegitimate. It's just like there was nothing Plato could do about that. To be clear, I wasn't complaining. I wasn't complaining about it ending that way. I think Plato makes a very specific choice to end it that way. And I think that the choice is very aware of the irony of ending a critique of oratory and rhetoric with a speech that employs those techniques. So I guess my, this is not how else would you want him to end it? I want him to end it this way. It's just, I want, what I go back and forth on is how to interpret that. And one way I think you interpret that is this was a failure on Socrates' part. And Plato is presenting a failure here even with all, not that the arguments in there are failures, but there's something that Socrates does that is a failure. And that's what Plato felt like presenting. And, you know, and if you interpret it that way, then it's interesting to, for me at least, what are his reasons for presenting uh, what seems like, or at least can be interpreted as a failure? Good. So I wanted to respond to this thing uh, that you said, which is a good point that Socrates makes a lot of long speeches at the end of the Gorgias, not only the myth, but a lot of stuff earlier than that, too. And then at the beginning of the Gorgias, he says he doesn't want his interlocutors to make long speeches. So and Socrates draws attention to his own long speech earlier in. Right. So I think Plato wants us to notice this. Um, So I think that Socrates is not opposed to long speeches per se. I think what he is opposed to is that uh, most of the people that he talks to can't make a long speech without wavering over the course of the speech. So the speech will itself occupy multiple positions. And he points that out about Gorgias, right? He makes, he's like, Gorgias, you said this, and then you said this, and I'm going to show you that actually you changed your position midstream. And because Socrates wants to investigate a given point, he just can't let people make long speeches. But he, Socrates, is really good at saying the same thing over and over again. And it's very clear in the long speeches that he's making towards the end that they're kind of just one point hammering home over and over again. He's being like, consistency is definitely there, even if there are other problems with it. And so I don't actually think that it's a problem that he is making long speeches. Um, that is, I, I don't actually think Socrates has any hard and fast rules about how you have to talk. All of his so-called rules, like say what you believe, don't make long speeches, etc., are also broken in other places. He wants to do whatever is going to be best for the argument. And I think that by the time Callicles has reached this level of recalcitrance, the best thing for the argument is the thing that he in fact does. But I I guess I don't necessarily think that Socrates, that the fact that Callicles has reached that level of recalcitrance is a sign of Socrates' failure. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is our returning sponsor, and I'm very proud that they are because let's face it, a lot of us need help. A lot of us are going through some serious shit right now. And there are two things that are making this especially difficult during a pandemic. One, we don't have the social support in our lives. We can't visit friends and family the way that we usually are able to. And two, it's actually very inconvenient to try to find a therapist 
and make an appointment and show up physically at their office with all of this going on. That's why I genuinely think that giving BetterHelp a try might be the way to go. BetterHelp can connect you with a therapist, a licensed professional therapist, in a safe and private online environment. They assess your needs and they match you with a therapist that has the experience and expertise in whatever area it is that you're struggling with. Depression, anxiety, grief, uh, trauma, a bad breakup, anything, they're there to help. You can be communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours via a video chat online, over the telephone, even over text messaging. Anything that you share is, of course, confidential because these are professionals. It's, again, a convenient, a convenient option. It's an affordable option. And if you can't afford it, there is financial aid available. If you're wondering or if you're curious at all, if you're on the fence about it, go to their website and check out the testimonials that people post. They're posted daily on their site. And if you're one of our listeners and you want to try out BetterHelp, go to betterhelp.com slash VBW and you'll get 10% off of your first month. So join over the 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health again and visit betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW for that 10% off of your first month. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. I have like the broadest of questions, um, actually probably for both of you since you guys uh, do a lot more of, of this reading than, than I do. But you know, there's this view that I think is a familiar one to anybody who's, who's read just a little bit of philosophy, that the Greeks somehow, these Greeks somehow had like this achievement unlocked moment where there was, there were people and then they came along and and showed because you know you see the roots of of obviously of modern analytic philosophy in these dialogues and there is this view that something happened there that kind of changed the way human beings thought for the rest of you know history is that is that true is and if so what got unlocked here? Because, you know, every, there is thousands of years of myth and no attempts like, you know, in the Bible, for instance, there's no attempts at really uh, presenting anything like a scrutinized rational argument. No, no, even seeming any, seemingly a thought that what you were saying, uh, Agnes, the manifest content has to be assertable and defended. It just, does it, does it really just pop up in this one pocket of, of the world? And is that is that how we are to understand the contribution, uh, the lasting contribution of these philosophers? It's such a, I know it's a broad question. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm happy to answer it. And I think that maybe I'm someone who has a kind of like, like almost cartoonishly idealistic answer to it, which is just like, yes, like that. And in particular that Socrates, now I, I, I want to, I want to say, I think Socrates was living in a kind of intellectual culture that was special in a lot of different ways, but let me just not worry about that for the moment, just talk about what he did. So I think that if you just think about the fact that we have background conversational norms for truth-seeking and inquiry, like don't straw man your interlocutor when somebody is showing you that you're wrong, they're actually kind of doing you a favor, listen to arguments, try to come up with objections, admit when you're wrong, like all that stuff, you don't have to say it. It's so obvious, right? It's so obvious that it is what it is to have an intellectual conversation. I think that Socrates just kind of came up with those, that that just didn't exist before him, basically. And that speaking, like, was about getting people to believe something, where 
that could be a matter of conveying information to someone, like a messenger. So there's conveying information. And then there's a kind of entrenched battle of speeches that you see, for instance, in Greek tragedy, like Antigone versus Creon. There is no sense that anyone's ever going to persuade anyone. And they're not speaking in any mood that is designed for that result. And so, but you get these Socratic conversations that just, it's like they follow a new set of rules. And sometimes Socrates, people are so confused by this. It's quite often Socrates has to make the rules explicit. He has to say, no, I want you to like respond to the thing I just said. No, don't just go on talking for an hour. Let's just like examine it bit by bit. No, I'm not trying to hurt you. We're actually trying to do something together here, right? Stuff that's like we would not need to say because of Socrates. He he established that, right? So it's like a new game that he figured out how to play. But yet people were pulled by consistency, you know, or at least it's written that way. So there was something there that makes it seem inevitable. This was going to happen. And I'm just sort of fascinated by how it did happen that that these, you know, were that these were presumably tacit rules of logic, or at least at least at the minimum, a desire for uh, for consistency that is at the heart of, of the very impulse to do this. I mean, sometimes I actually think maybe we overestimate the degree to which in the Socratic texts there is already this sense of something like logical entailment. Like, that is, you might say, oh, we people before Socrates must have had that. And I'm like, I'm not sure Socrates had it. That is, it's not an accident that Socrates and Plato don't come up with logic. We have to wait till Aristotle for that. And you look at a dialogue like the Euthydemus, which is basically a bunch of just word games is how we would put it, right? It's like, uh, you know, oh, you beat your dog. Well, your dog has puppies and it's a male dog and it sired these puppies. And so your dog is a father and therefore you beat your father because it's your dog and it's a father, okay? So like, that's an example of an argument from the Euthydemus. And we're reading this and we're just like, come on, this is like a joke, right? And uh, it's just one thing like that. And and Socrates at the end of it calls those th- those two guys who were giving those arguments philosophers, right? He doesn't, th- he's not like, oh, they're just playing word tricks. You know, we're at a point in the history of thought where the clarity of that distinction hasn't been made yet, right? We have Socrates, uh, hearing these different ways of using words and having a lot of faith in the power of words to like lead us to the truth, right? And being like, well, we're just going to have to figure out how to, you know, what does it mean to say he's a father and he's mine, but he's not my father. And, you know, Aristotle then is going to write the sophistical refutations, which is about like trying to systematize these various ways in which we can have fallacies and reasoning. And then he's like, he's going to write logic and be like, look, let's come up with a general way to formulate it. And now that's all part of our minds and how we think. We think in Aristotelian terms in a lot of ways. So we're like, well, there's logical entailment and logical compulsion, right? And being compelled. Uh, But that's Aristotle's logical necessity that we have learned, right? So you know, I think part of the key is not retrojecting too much into the Socratic texts. To bring it back to the gorgeous, but to stay on this point of consistency, that is the exact thing, right? That Socrates is pressing over and over again. Get Paulus, I want to get Paulus to agree with Paulus. I want to get Callicles. I can show you that Callicles doesn't agree with Callicles. And so, and the way he draws, he refutes them is by showing that there is 
that they're they're committed to something that is inconsistent with the, another thing they're they're saying. So in that sense, even if it's not strict entailment and there's no formalized system yet, it's there is this sense of this is what Socrates' method is all about. It is this is what dialectic is all about. It is making the person to have ordered beliefs, coherent beliefs. Yes, but I think it um, the way that it's characterized in the in the dialogues is more specific than that. It's about coherence over time. So over and over and over again, you'll see in the dialogues, a polis to agree with himself means polis at T1 agreeing with polis at T2, right? And so his interlocutors are always wavering and they're always complaining about how they're wavering, right? Uh, Euthyphro, I think it's Euthyphro, is like, you're making my speeches move around. And Socrates is like, I'm not doing it, Euthyphro. You're just changing your mind all the time, right? So the, the situation that people find themselves in is that they keep changing their minds. So they keep saying one thing and then they say another thing. And what Socrates is trying to do is in effect to say the same thing over and over again. And when he says these conclusions are bound down with chains of iron and adamant, right? You could use that, you know, you could say that against me like, well, isn't that compulsion, right? Well, I think what he means is that I always keep saying them. Like in every context, I come back and I say this over and over again. And so there's a kind of, I think there's a very strong association in the Socratic text between knowledge on the one hand and stability over time, cognitive stability over time, including like in the Mino where you have like knowledge versus true beliefs, right? Um, that's sort of what's the, the ground of that distinction as well. And I think that the temporal element can be erased once you get to Aristotle. The temporal element can be erased when you get to Aristotle because it's eternal. Yeah, it's logical entanglement, and so you can sort of hang in on something else other than the fact that you're only saying the same thing. That no matter that every time you try to speak, you land in the same place. For Socrates, there's no separating of his thought from that activity. I, I'm wondering if you think, you know, even I guess maybe as to to go out on this question of Plato's maybe more artistic side or way of interpreting him, something like symposium. Do you think symposium, would you also say that's just a way of presenting arguments? I know you probably are familiar with Martha Nussbaum's article, The Speech of Alcibiades, which I love and kind of I probably was influenced by to some degree that the, that the dramatic structure of that, and I because I, I kind of think this is true of a lot of them, including the Gorgias, the dramatic structure of it has philosophical significance. Do you buy that way of reading Plato or not? I don't have an in-principle objection to it, but I never find that the philosophical significance given to the dramatic structure is especially philosophically interesting. I've never found that it's more interesting than the actual just philosophical content of the speeches, right? And so there's this idea that we're like, almost, I feel like there's this promise that people have been making me that we're going to get all this interesting stuff out of like, you know, the, the, the dialogue form and the, and the patterns and the myths and whatever. And I'm like, what's the wonderful big theory that's come out of it? Cause I can tell you some of the theories that come out of just the straight up arguments. We're still arguing those arguments. They're fascinating and interesting. There's a theory of forms. We, I didn't, we can get the theory of forms by looking at like how Plato uses images or, you know, right. We got it by just reading the Republic. So I, I guess part, it's not, it's not, I'm not objecting to it. I, I just get less out of that than out of looking at the arguments and like the symposium for me, I, I I sort of agree. It's hard to 
it's hard to think that the sort of dramatic aspects of the symposium are not important because a lot of the speeches are kind of boring. So in order to sort of validate their interest, you have to somehow give them dramatic importance. But for me, what is interesting about the symposium, it's the connection between Socrates' speech and Alcibiades' speech. And then, you know, maybe bringing Aristophanes' too. And this question of what is it to love another person and how much do you cling to that particular person when you love them? And the symposium is an exploration of that question through the content of what these people say more than anything else as I read it. Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> and I, there are some, there's so much else that we could have talked about that I want to talk to you about, um, but I really appreciate your time. Oh, it was my pleasure. Aporia, aporia. Aporia, yeah. 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 <laughs> we're not ending with a myth, so I guess we're ending in Aporia. <laughs> Those are the two choices. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Um, and join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.